Today, I'm talking to Zachary Drucker. She's the transgender artist and activist who's also producer on the Emmy award-winning TV show Transparent. We really believe in the power of storytelling as a greater strategy to change hearts and minds. The show, which follows the journey of the Pfefferman family as the father comes out as transgender, has been groundbreaking. What better way to do that than to train a generation of trans people to work in the realm of production in Hollywood. Hi, I'm Kirsty Robinson, and this is Saints of Somewhere. From artists to activists, musicians to medics, in each episode, an incredible guest talks to me about their saints, their heroes and defining influences. Zachary's work as an artist has also proved powerful. Together with former partner Reese Ernst, she's documented their love affair while she transitioned from male to female and Reese from female to male over a six-year period. It was only once the years had passed that we realized that we had this incredible archive, not only documenting our domestic life together, but documenting our transitions. For many minorities in the US, particularly the LGBT community, role models and representation have never been more important. And for Zachary, they also come together to form a family. It's not only just about the presidency, it's about a culture of hate that essentially what we've been experiencing over the past few years in the US is culture wars. Hope you enjoy it. This is Zachary Drucker on Saints of Somewhere. What can I say? I'm a, I'm a transparent addict. Uh, oh, I've, got bags and, I've got bags under my eyes as a result of not being able to press the stop button late at night. Yeah, <laughs> I hear you. Why do you think so many people love the show so much? You know, I think that people love Transparent so much because it depicts a family that seems a lot like families that we come from. It's a flawed family with characters who are lovable and then sometimes unlikable. And it makes them very human. Um, I think that the characters are created with a depth of humanity that we rarely see on television. I think that situating a trans character in a narrative about a family is a huge game changer. We've only ever been represented as sort of satellites or um, on the fringes of society as victims or villains. And I think that the opportunity we've had to sort of amend and update those representations has been, you know, really revolutionary. I love it. I just love it. Yeah. It's my favorite show, that's for sure. (laughs) Can you explain a little about what makes the production on the show different from most others? Because that's really different too, right? Well, you know, I came on to Transparent when Jill Soloway, the creator of the show, was writing the pilot. So it was in the summer of 2013, which was such a different time than today. Reese Ernst, my frequent collaborator, and I met with Jill and she was writing the pilot and she said, do you want to collaborate on this? And we both come from art world, film world and collaboration. The fact that she used the word collaboration was a really um, interesting choice for us. And we said, of course, Um, it was an easy sell. A big part of what we do is sort of shepherd the politics of representation 
as well as bring as many trans and gender nonconforming people onto the crew as possible. So we employ at least one person in every department, a person who has not necessarily had a leg up or an opportunity. Employment discrimination has long been one of the biggest impediments to our community's growth. We really believe in the power of storytelling as a greater strategy to change hearts and minds and to put our stories out there. What better way to do that than to train a generation of trans people to work in the realm of production in Hollywood, which is the you know economic center of the city that we live in. We've hired 50 trans and gender nonconforming crew and actors with speaking parts, and then a few hundred as um, background actors. So it's a really inclusive atmosphere. We have gender neutral bathrooms on our sets. Uh, Everybody goes through a trans 101. What's that? Trans 101? Tell me. We just educate. You know, we focus on uh, educating all of the people on the production chain. We go to every department, essentially, educating people about how to work with your trans colleagues, just giving everybody kind of like a base level of knowledge so they can feel comfortable. And then the other part of it is that like any of those cisgender or non-trans crew members go out into the world and they say, oh, I work, you know, what... You know, they're at a dinner party, hypothetically. And somebody says, what are you working on? They say, I'm working on transparent. It becomes the conversation at the dinner table. Like everybody wants to talk about the trans zeitgeist and the trans movement. So those cisgender crew members become our sort of ambassadors. There's like 1.4 million trans people in the U.S., but that means that there's 100 times as many cis people. So like we really rely on building alliances with non-trans folks to sort of help spread the gospel. Can we talk a little bit about um, the project relationship? Yeah. I know that um, uh, there's a book now. It was a part of of the Whitney Biennale. Um, Can you tell us a bit about it? So relationship is a project that I created with Reese Ernst, who was my partner for five and a half years. He's still my collaborator and teammate. We work as producers on Transparent. In our early stages of transition, we came together. We were both 25 years old. We met and fell in love and documented our relationship. And the photographs from that five and a half year period premiered at the Whitney Museum in 2014. Uh, at the biennial and is now a book. It's funny, the photographs were never intended for a public audience. We just took pictures of each other and of ourselves, kind of stored them. Like they all lived in my iPhoto on my computer. We made these images really as like a private document. It was only once the years had passed that we realized that we had this incredible archive of images, um, not only documenting our domestic life together, but documenting our transitions and 
our love for each other. And I think that's going to be the antidote here now. I mean, I think that the only way that we will persevere through a dark stage of American history is by looking within and finding love for each other, for everybody around us, which is something that you can't kill, you know? Absolutely. And I think that takes a really good time to talk about your saints. We'll start with the first one, Flawless Sabrina. Who is she and what, what does she mean to you? Flawless Sabrina, I met when I was 18 years old. I had just moved to New York City from Syracuse, New York. There was this drag festival that happened every year called Wigstock. That year was in the West Side Piers, and it was the weekend before 9-11. Also kind of the eve of a new era of American history. I couldn't afford the ticket to go into Wigstock, So I just waited outside and I had a camera and I was taking pictures of some of the queens coming in and out of Wigstock and Flawless Sabrina was one of those queens and she had such a good look. She was like in this Victorian regalia with this sky high wig and corset and she was, you know, much older than the other queens already. I've always been really drawn to elders. I think that comes from being close to my great-grandmother when I was an adolescent. But Flawless Sabrina, I took a picture of, and she said, you're on the wrong side of the camera, kid. I hung that picture up on my wall right next to my bed. I had a little tiny apartment in Brooklyn, and... I kind of manifested her. And it's funny because I didn't know anything about her. I didn't know who she was. But I slowly started to see her in and around the club scene because she was like a, you know, den mother to the downtown New York kind of party scene. She's lived in New York since 1967 um, in the same apartment on the Upper East Side. Her story, I come I you know eventually found out most notably by finding my way up to her apartment eventually and working my way into her community and life was transformative and magical and I was so young that she really shaped my development and my ethos as a person as an artist I would not be who I am were it not for Flawless Sabrina. Um, She is my best friend, um, my soulmate, and (laughs) made lots of artwork with her. She was just here in Los Angeles visiting. She's 77 years old now. She ran drag contests in the 1950s and 1960s, has 100 felonies, under her belt for the crime of cross-dressing. So she has survived a really intolerant time and really intolerant conditions. And from people like her, I think we will 
be brave and strong and weather the storm. Just to get a handle on what her significance is in sort of the, the pop culture matrix, I mean, she was William Burroughs' lover, part of the Warhol scene, but then she went on as well to consult on movies, work with Hillary Clinton on changing passport markers for transgender people, is that right? Yes. She's a giant. Yeah. One of the reasons why I identify with Wallace is that she's a producer and I'm a producer. Um, We both love being engaged. We love being activated. We love working. And we love doing much of that sort of behind the scenes. She taught me a long time ago that the things that really matter to you in life are the things you'll do for no money and no credit. And... I really believe that. (laughs) That's actually like a good marker for me. If I'm doing it for no money and no credit, it means that it's really worthwhile and it's something that I'm really going to cherish and value being a part of. Can we move on to Saint number two, Hollywood Lawn? Yeah, Holly. I know that she's sadly passed away now, but there's so much love for her still. Can you just explain to listeners who aren't familiar with her, they might have encountered her legend without realising in um, Walk on the Wild Side, right? Yeah, so Holly is most notorious for being the namesake of Walk on the Wild Side, Lou Reed's classic song. Uh, Holly came from Miami FLA, hitchhiked away across the USA, plucked her eyebrows on the way, Shaved her legs and then he was a she. She said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. It's a song that everybody knows. And it starts with my auntie, Holly Woodlawn. I met Holly shortly after I moved to Los Angeles in 2005. I was connected to her through Fall of Sabrina. And, you know, I kind of had identified her as a saint already because she was such a pioneer. She was an out trans person and icon way before it was chic, (laughs) way before it was safe. She, you know, survived the streets of Times Square as a teenage runaway hustler and scammed her way into the Warhol's factory and became um, indispensable there as one of the outlandish characters. Holly was so much fun. Holly was never bitter. Even in her last days, never bitter. It was astounding, the lightness that she brought and the levity that she brought into everybody around her. She was hilarious. She was sharp and wry and unpredictable. I remember... Her birthday, I was just reminiscing about this because her 70th birthday would have been two weeks ago and she passed away less than a year ago. I miss her. I think about her every day. I have a lot of voicemails from her that I listen to and I miss her. She was such a pioneer. Her book, Walk on the Wild Side, is a classic. There were stories that she told me that didn't make it into Walk on the Wild Side because they included public figures and she was afraid of being sued. So she told me a really good 
Jim Morrison's story. She told me a really good Eddie Murphy story. I read a fabulous quote from her about fame and becoming a Warhol superstar in the 1970s. She said, little did I realize that not only would there be no money, but that your star would flicker for two seconds. And that was it. But it was worth it. The drugs, the parties, it was fabulous. Do you know that quote? (laughs) Yeah. Does it ring true? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I can hear her saying that. When she got ill... You know, she was moved from her apartment to an assisted care facility, and it was right near the Paramount lot where I work on Transparent. So I was able to go and visit her. I would just go go over after work and hang out with her and talk and sit on this patio, and she'd still be, like, chain-smoking and talking shit about the other people at the care facility. <laughs> She just was like, oh, she was an original. She never lost hope. She knew that she was dying. She didn't ever admit to that. Um, But I think that that's how a lot of people deal with their mortality is by staying in denial about it. I, I was with her the day that she passed. Earlier in the day, you know, people were kind of coming in and out of the room. And I had a good like 15 minutes alone with her and I just you know spoke to her told her what she meant to me and what she meant to the world what she meant to outsiders and to our community she was you know probably in a coma state but she could hear me because she was raising her eyebrows and making little (laughs) facial expressions and we just held hands and I felt this transfer of energy into my hand and my hand our hands were just heating up there was just such tremendous heat between us and it felt like a deck of cards being shuffled into my hand I felt like I was being filled up with her energy and her memories and I think that in that moment she knew that, um, you know, she was having trouble breathing. Um, so her breathing was sort of sporadic. I think she transferred some of her brilliant and beautiful light into me. So I'm thankful for that. I, I don't have any regrets. I spent spent a lot of time with her. She passed the baton on. Yeah. You called her aunt. Uh-huh. Why was that? Well, you know, Flawless Sabrina is my grandmother. Mm-hmm. So in queer communities, we have chosen families. I'm really fortunate to have a great family of origin. I have a really close relationship with my parents. Um, but Flawless Sabrina, I mean, I think that regardless, there's things that you get from other queer community members that are things that are taught that you can't learn from your family of origin just because our lives are a little different. Um, Our history is different. So Flawless is my grandma. And at this point, I think I'm too old for it. Like I think that I've aged out of having grandmothers, but I have lots of aunts, you know, sort of queer mother, Auntie Holly. Um, Our Auntie Halls is what I (laughs) called her. Let's talk about Kate Bornstein. 
saint, your next saint. My other auntie. Oh, yeah. perfect, probably. Um, so she's probably best known these days as one of Caitlyn Jenner's friends on I'm Kate, but she's had many, many incarnations and strings to her bow, right? Absolutely. Oh my God, Kate Bornstein is a is a queer and pleasant danger. Is one of my <laughs> favorite books. I I listed it recently on. In the New York Times, like as as one of my ten favorite books, um, it's her memoir, and it traces her entire life from growing up in New Jersey as a Jewish boy, finding Scientology, and being one of L. Ron Hubbard's sort of closest workers, escaping Scientology, transitioning, and becoming this incredibly visible advocate for the trans community. So. Auntie Kate is my saint because I found her book, Gender Outlaw, when I was 14 years old. And I believe I shoplifted it from a chain, like from a commercial bookstore. <laughs> As you do, age 14. It was so funny because like my whole life I had been really different, you know, and Everybody always thought that I was probably gay, even in my family. And I remember as a young adolescent thinking, this isn't about other people. Like, it just, like, didn't fit together. Like, the pieces didn't fit. I was like, I'm not attracted to anybody at five years old or six years old. But I knew that that something within me was different. So when I found Gender Outlaw at 14... I was finally able to point to this thing and be like, I'm trans. And of course, it took another five or 10 years. It means something different to you at different times in your life. Kate Bornstein taught me in Gender Outlaw that you could make up your own rules, that you could have fun with gender, that you didn't have to subscribe to any one way of being. She kind of made it okay. She also wrote this book, which I think will be a great antidote to the sort of dark days that we find ourself, ourselves in today. Her book, Hello, Cruel World, 101 Alternatives to Suicide for Teens, Freaks, and Other Outlaws. And then another thing that I keep in my desk drawer is her Get Out of Hell Free card, which is for anybody living on the fringes and has been told that they're going to hell, she says, I will do your time for you. You know, all three of these sort of trans elders have really important survival strategies for all of us. I've been so fortunate to have Kate in my life, Auntie Kate. Have you ever heard um, Mark Maron's interview of RuPaul? Because there's something in that that I wanted to ask you about, a way that, the way that RuPaul describes society as like the matrix. You know, and once you realise it's not real and it's a huge relief, you, it's the moment that you realise it's a construct and not a reality. Is that what you're talking about in Kate's expression of how you can be? Yeah, I think so. You make your reality. Yeah. And there's certain things that Flawless says, like certain catchphrases phrases that she has. But one of the things is like, it's your movie, own it. <laughs> you know, I think we all feel like we've been kind of slapped upside the head right now. And once we come to, I, we're, I think that we're going to be fighting harder. I do 
subscribe to some kind of like California new age philosophies. And I think that energy is recycled. I think that we have pieces of past heroes and warriors within us. And I think that we're going to have to harness all of that agency and power. We will continue to move forward and we will continue to live and we will live again. Tell me about Ron Effie, the performance artist who's also on your list of saints. How does he figure in all this? So this is my family. Ron is my dad. I met Ron 10 years ago also. I mean, I met many of these people when I was young and so they've all been really influential. Ron is a total outlaw. His sort of roots in noise, death metal scenes. He's one of the original goths. He is a true punk through and through. I consider him like my creative father figure. He is so generous and so kind and loving. He's someone as an artist who's famous for his masochism, self-mutilation, sensationalism. What does that mean to you? What does that say to you, that level of self-violence? You know, I think that art making at best provides a place for us to exorcise our darkness. Um, And I think that if you can do that within the safety of a stage with an audience, um, it can be cathartic and shared and ultimately you're manifesting something that is within all of us. I think that Ron is a warrior because he survived a pandemic and was squarely looking at his own mortality while watching all of his friends pass away. And he responded to it with resistance. He was implicated in the culture wars and targeted by Jesse Helms, among many other great artists in the spirit of ACT UP and Queer Nation and this tremendous history of queer resistance. He's a giant to me. Ron, it seems, has lived several lives in a way, though, doesn't it? So, you know, you spoke about him, his diagnosis with HIV in his 20s. But before that, his formative years, I mean, he had an extraordinary childhood, didn't he? Yeah, he was raised by an evangelical family in San Bernardino, which is like an hour and a half east of Los Angeles. He was sort of a child prophet or considered a a child prophet, like speaking in tongues. He was, you know, a gifted child academically as well. I mean, he was, you know, really excelled in school as well as in church. So he has, I mean, all of these people have lived so many lives. That's the incredible thing about being a human is that we're infinitely transformable. And from one moment to the next, we're changing. How do we reinvent ourselves in this? How do I reinvent myself in this? What will my role be? How can I be most helpful? All of the kind of boundaries of art making have fallen away in times of social upheaval and economic distress. You know, I think in a way that's the silver lining, um, that the stakes change 
within the art world, there's been such a bubble of of the market of certain kinds of work being supported. And all of these artists who are working outside of that market are continuing to make work and kind of slogging away. But I think that we will be creating alternative spaces to show that work. I think that we'll be utilizing public space. I think that artists will have an expanded role in the future. It's how we're going to make sense of this new new world, isn't it? Yeah. It's the only thing that's ever saved us is our creativity. And I think that artists have a unique set of tools to navigate shifting ground. You know, we're good problem solvers. How about we talk about Laverne Cox, your uh, final saint here? Uh, Like the majority of people, I first became aware of Laverne um, watching her play Sophia in Orange is the New Black. And like everyone else, I was totally blown away. What does she mean to you? I met Laverne when I was 20 years old and she was playing Marsha P. Johnson in a student film that one of my best friends from growing up, Sunita Prasad, directed when she was a student at NYU. And I was playing like a street queen that just walks by Marsha at some point. We have a little interaction. But I remember I must have been 20 or maybe I was 21. Laverne, I think, had recently transitioned. I didn't know that many trans women at that point. I knew Flawless Sabrina. I'd been kind of in the club scene and around a lot of like queens and sort of nightclub personalities. But I hadn't quite yet kind of tapped into the world of transness. And of course, at this time, that world was still so underground and there wasn't much of a sense of community anyways. But she was an archetype for me in understanding what was possible. So this is back in like 2003. We kept in touch and hung out a few times when I still lived in New York. And then I moved to LA in 2005. And I didn't see her for a long time, but I followed her. She was on I want to work for P. Diddy, this show. And then she had like a makeover show, I think on Logo. And I just, you know, continued to kind of like follow her trajectory as as a public person. And I've always had so much respect for her mind. Laverne is such an intellectual. I mean, she's a wordsmith. Um, She always knows what to say. She is completely on point. She's sharp as a razor. She's just a living goddess, I think. And the times that we've overlapped over the past several years in in Los Angeles, I just feel such uh, solidarity and camaraderie with her. And she's one of those rare people who I consider a friend, but also an archetype in a way. I mean, one glance at her Twitter feed in the aftermath of the Trump uh, victory is clear proof of all of that. You know, she's a, she's an important source of inspiration and courage. I, I think in one post she says something like, life has been a struggle in the past and we faced it. This is what we must continue to do. Her sense of perspective is important, right? Absolutely. 
I mean, I know that I am looking to many of these public figures right now for guidance as well. The only way that we'll get through this is by banding together, having these sort of markers, these monuments, for lack of a better word, is imperative. Do you feel positive about what comes next? I know it's difficult, but there's some positivity there, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that like the pendulum swings, right? (laughs) So it's like we're on the precipice of of time that is going to be much different than the time that we've been in for the past eight years. But that doesn't mean that in another four years, eight years, 10 years, we're going to be in a much better position again. You know, I, I don't think that life is easy or fair. You know, I've never had illusions about that. And social change happens in a truncated way. You know, oftentimes it is forward and back. I think that bracing ourselves for backdraft is regardless of the emotions that pass through us because of that, as a result of that, um, we will still be here and we will continue moving forward and leading. I think that we just have to be brave basically. And hopefully our public figures will teach us how to be brave. As an artist, is that how you're feeling about, obviously you don't know where you're going to be going with your art next, but the general tone is, is it has to be brave. Absolutely. I mean, I think you have to live your life with bravery, especially as a, you know, a woman, a person of color, a queer person. Like we, you know, we have no choice that's a piece of our survival is bravery Zachary it's been a total pleasure talking to you today a beacon in times of darkness thank you for taking the time and for your interest your uh solidarity with us really means the world so Zachary Drucker how about that there's so much to love and admire in Zachary She's brave and it's honest. Identity politics can get confusing and it's difficult to navigate sometimes. So when someone as talented as Zachary and the team on Transparent take the conversation to a place which is essentially about humanity, it becomes really loud and powerful. Voices like Zachary's are unstoppable. Before we started recording our interview, Zachary recounted a Gloria Steinem quote to me from the aftermath of Trump's win. Steinem said... I feel like this represents a vote against the future. But the future is happening anyway. Thanks for listening. Remember, saintsofsomewhere.com is the place to visit for all past programmes. 